Welcome to Canada's History's Stories Behind the History podcast. I'm Kate Jamet, Senior Editor of Canada's History magazine. In this podcast, we take a closer look at some of the stories featured in our award-winning print publication. In our April-May issue, we feature a story about the colonial connections between Canada and India by Madhuparna Gupta. Madhuparna is an instructor in the Department of Global Development Studies at St. Mary's University in Halifax. She received her PhD in International Relations from Jadavpur University in Kolkata, India, and worked as an assistant professor of political science in India before immigrating to Canada. Madhuparna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kate. I look forward to hear from you all. Thank you for joining us. And we're also joined by Stephen Bown. Stephen is an author who has written 10 books on the history of exploration, science, and ideas, and won numerous awards. His most recent book, winner of the 2021 J.W. Defoe Prize, is The Company, The Rise and Fall of the Hudson's Bay Empire. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So, Madhuparna, I'd like to start by asking you, how did you get interested in researching the colonial connections between Canada and India? Uh, well, uh, uh, my research interest primarily began from uh, my landing in Halifax in 2019, October. And when I saw this this, uh, this huge uh, uh, university, of Dalhousie University, which was established by none other than Lord Dalhousie, and also while visiting around the, 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 the streets of, of Halifax, primarily you know, the Lucknow Street, the Wellington Street, uh, and, also the, and also the suburbs of Nova Scotia, like the cities of Warren, Hester, Things, Amherst. So that led me. Uh, that that made me much more curious to know what is going here. That means, I mean, back in India, we also have you know similar st- uh, similar street like Dalhousie Square, uh, Cornwallis Avenue, Cornwallis Streets, Amherst Streets, Minto Minto Park, and so on and so forth. And also the impressive buildings of Halifax, the the architectural styles, the the the, the broad pillars and columns. So so uh, that have these all these have you know a, 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 a peculiar resemblance with that of Calcutta, Bombay, and Madras and other colonial cities, which were which the where the East India Company had the profound basis in the earlier times. So that prompted me uh, me that 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 where lies the connection. So 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 when I started scratching, so you know more and more doors started opening up one after the other. And uh, and also at the back of my mind, I also came to realize that okay, I'm also equally connected uh, uh, with this with this entire narrative because of my upbringing in Calcutta, primarily because of uh, my, my my schooling. Uh, I, I started in Saint John's uh, Diocesan Girls Higher Secondary School. It was established in 1893 by the Christian missionaries, and it is located in the, in the junction between uh, Lansdowne Road and Minto Park. That's really interesting. I think a lot of our Canadian listeners would recognize some of those names like Dalhousie and Minto and Lansdowne, but we might not be aware of the Indian connection. Stephen? I was just going to comment that I I think it's absolutely fascinating what you've done, and I've not seen it done that way before, drawing the the connections between the colonial outposts of the British Empire for all of us who are living in the remnants of that empire. And I, I, yeah, I, I, I just find it very intriguing that those same, I never knew that those same names were all over India. And it's just, you know, one brief general comment on empire in general. I mean, you know, when you're traveling around Europe, you see all the, you know, the roads and the bathhouses and the aqueducts, the remnants of the Roman empire for when it had conquered that. And if you're traveling around Mexico, you see all these 
Aztec pyramids that were all built when the Aztec Empire expanded and conquered all of Mexico and, and took that land over. You know, the Middle East and North Africa and into Eastern Europe is is a little with mosques from when the Islamic armies were taking over. And it's it's just interesting that the, the remnants of empire are everywhere. We all kind of live amongst the decaying social and and architectural infrastructure of well, in in our case now it's the British Empire, but yeah, I think you're right. I think these colonial connections are totally fascinating, and and we're going to get to some more of them. Uh, but first of all, if you don't mind, I'd like to just step back for a second and set the scene for our listeners. So um, we're in the 1500s, the 1600s, the Great Age of Sail. These navigators, European navigators, are sailing all around the globe. They're encountering different peoples, different countries. When they get to the Indian subcontinent, uh, Madhubrana. What kind of society do they encounter there? What does this society look like at that time? Yes, uh, when the when the Europeans uh, traders who later turned colonial uh, uh, colonizers they appeared, they arrived in, in India around from from fifteenth century century onwards. India at the time was already flourished, was already established at that point of time. Given that fact that India has a long antiquity of over three thousand five hundred years, starting from the Indus Valley civilization, and by that time India Indian Indian Empire was basically stretched from Afghanistan in the north to to to, to Burma, which is present day called Myanmar. So we so India India at that point of time India and and, and even down to the when the, till the British appeared came came to India. So India was generally a, a fragments of of several several uh, imperial kings and, and and the respective kingdoms. So uh, so we had uh, so so from the very beginning we from the from the from the Mauryans the 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 the, the Magadhan dynasties the Gupta dynasties uh, in the north we have the the Pallavas the the Rashtrakutas in the south we have the Pallas and Bengals uh, uh, Pallas and Sinhas in the in the east and we have the Rajputs the Marathas in the west so India had a very a very rich connection because of uh, of not only you know at the time the, there was a territorial conquest outside India but it was generally a kind of time trade and interest that that India India established with Southeast Asia South uh, with the East with East Asia Middle East Central Asia because of India's India's uh, export of silk silk goods cotton goods ivories spices and you know saffron saffron is the is the is a most is, is the most exquisite and the richest uh, a very expensive spice, which is which is manufactured in Kashmir. So the spice, even still now, it is it's the most expensive ones. So so the so the traders from from all parts of the, of the around the world used to come over and have trade with with India for these uh, for acquiring this type of goods. So India India used to have you know the, the uh, people and tra- travelers and traders from from Italy, from from Albania, Morocco, from from Spain, Central Asia, Southeast Asia, China, so on and so forth. So India was basically a kind of cosmopolitan city, city empire at that point of time. And around the fact, India, Indian art, culture, civilization, medicine, history, uh, they all have, have have attracted the the foreigners to come and acquire that knowledge. So it was basically an acquisition, uh, a very kind of, you know, a melting pot for which India was acquiring at that point of time. 
and uh, and uh, and also the the with the arrival of the mughals in 1526 establishing the mughal dynasty so by that time when the with the mughals came came to india kind of you know the islamic civilization had already started flourishing from uh, from uh, from early uh, 11th century onwards and by that time you know from the from spain the from the toledo i mean the spain the spanish city of toledo to to new to delhi at that point of time there's a whole a whole this entire area was under this islam Islamic civilization, and along with that, you know, flourished architecture, Islamic Islamic architecture. You know, the along with you know the, the Hindu Hindu temples, mosques, uh, mosques. They were all they were already already there, and uh, and 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 therefore the British, when the British as well as I mean the first landed the Portuguese in 1496 by Vasco da Gama. So for, from 1496 onwards, and, and and I would like to mention here that it is it is not that uh, that Vasco da Gama was the first f- first uh, uh, European. I mean Alexander the Great, a long time back in 324, had already uh, already made his his inroads into into northern India. And also we also have have uh, uh, Greek uh, education and scholars like Megasthenes and others have already already. Uh, 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 knew about India and people and the West knew about India through their writings, their travelogues. So therefore, India was was become a kind of very attractive destinations. And you know, King, I would like to uh, to connect point uh, point out here. You know, the the, the Portuguese king uh, uh, Emperor Manuel I he commissioned you know two different different uh, expeditions. One would come to this this uh, North America via this Northwest Passage, and another which would uh, down to via Cape of Good Hope to India. So, uh, so, uh, so, uh, so, uh, with the with with their with the you know the, the flourishing of Portuguese trade, and there came the Dutch. They also established their respective bases, and 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 this you you know uh, gave this impetus for the British to uh, uh, to to enter into this uncharted territory. So therefore, uh, uh, as the because of this royal proclamation that the East India Company was established in 1600, it was it it had this mission that's to that that's that's to uh, acquire the 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 properties. I mean the resources that India has are already at which is already India famous for. Let me stop you there at the East India Company because we're going to come back to the East India Company. But uh, now that we've set the scene for India and we've seen what it looked like at the time, Stephen, I'm going to ask you the same question for North America. So, what did North America look like when the European navigators first encountered that area of the world, and especially the northern part of North America, which later became Canada? Well. As you were just mentioning, there there were very different places. Like uh, Mr. Parna was just mentioning, um, you know, all all of India was a, a densely populated commercial region of the world with ships and and social and uh, you know economic connections throughout the entire region. That was quite different to North America, which at the time, before European colonization, had a much more limited population density. Particularly in the north, where the Hudson's Bay Company went um, on those coasts of Hudson's Bay, I, I believe that the standard accepted population figure for all of uh, northern and generally western North America at the time was around five hundred thousand. And so, there were more commercial networks than is generally acknowledged. Um, you know, on river systems, they find you know items of trade such as different. Furs and different uh, stones for different purposes, and food has been traded throughout 
you know, central and western North America, but it was not on the same scale because there was not the same population density. And so when the Hudson's Bay Company came, um, they were complete infants in this this land. They knew absolutely nothing. They didn't know how to survive. They didn't know how to get any food. And getting food was a serious concern for them. You sail, imagine these people, whether they're going to India or whether they're going to North America. This is a new technology, the sailing ship technology. You load a bunch of men onto these ships, you cram them full of people with a bunch of salted and dried food, and you set off sometimes who the heck knows where with some primitive inaccurate maps like we've all, <laughs> all seen with you know, kind of foolish dragon symbols on them and oceans that don't exist and islands that don't exist. And, and they set off for months at a time, months at a time. Uh, the route to India, I mean, 10, 10 to 20% of the people on any of those voyages would routinely die of disease or scurvy and other things just to get there. And that was a little bit less to get to North America just because of a shorter distance. But when those sailors arrived on the coast, they were not in good health. And so the first thing they had to do was to make cultural inroads into the local population, which generally had a seasonal occupation of the coastline. And that involved learning the language, marrying into those societies. Um, you know, they didn't, the Hudson's Bay Company people didn't go home each year. They often signed seven year contracts. So just to get there was so difficult that when they were there, they remained there. And they started their families there and they began small communities on the coast of mixed heritage, genetic and cultural heritage that began. And that's the genesis of, of um, the Hudson's Bay Company's workforce was the integration of cultures and societies in that region. And that's how the trade was spread. And for the first hundred, hundred and some years, the company never actually left its outposts along the frigid coast of the bay. They remained there kind of like wholesale distribution centers, while the retail aspect of the trade was entirely controlled and run by indigenous business enterprises that pushed the trade as far west as the Rocky Mountains and as far south into the northern United States and as far north into the Arctic. But that was not controlled by the company. That was controlled by um, certain trading captains who for many generations, um, well, you know, directed the trade and brought it to the company's outposts. That's really interesting, Stephen. And I, th I think it's true that Canadians often don't realize the role that Indigenous people played, not only in supplying the furs, but really in controlling the trade routes and the trade networks in the interior. I'd just like to give a bit of context to our readers about these trading companies. So the East India Company and the Hudson Bay Company uh, were both joint stock companies, commercial enterprises. They were founded in London, England, the East India Company or EIC in 1600 and the Hudson's Bay Company in 1670. And they were each given a royal charter. So this meant that the king or the queen gave them a monopoly on trade in a certain area of the world. So for the Hudson's Bay Company, it was obviously Hudson's Bay, uh, the northwest of what later became Canada. And for the East Indies Company, it was around India in the Indian Ocean and, and in the area around that area. So Madhuparna in India, as we mentioned, it began as a trading company, but that somehow over the centuries evolved into conquest and colonization. Can you explain to us a little bit, how did this original intention of trade transform into conquest, war, colonization? Yeah, that's a very interesting question, you know, Kate, you have you have raised. So uh, 
the thing is, uh, uh, the as as I was talking to you, you know, the, the Mughal Empire, the, the Mughal Empire had had you know they were much more interested in establishing land route corridors from the north. So from the from the southern Indian point of view, they were this coast were basically left unguarded. So that you know prompted some of uh, I mean this this English this European uh, traders to 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 appear in this Coromandel and this peninsular peninsular India and establish their bases one after the other by uh, by generally by securing you know the 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 grants from the emperor and uh, at the time they these uh, this uh, uh, the i mean the east india company appeared this this the spirit was very crucial for india because because there, there was there was a gradual degeneration there was a gradual disintegration of this broad this vast uh, uh, mughal empire so at that point of time because of the because given this you know the the, the central administration weakness so there, there was there was a rising of the local local chieftains local rulers who were earlier remaining and submissive to this uh, to this to this you know this uh, this uh, mughal mughal rule now now they were gaining prominence and they were they were actually they were for in search of their preponderance against the mughals so the so both the british as well as the as well as subsequently the french you know they exploited this kind of connection they allied with the with, with the local with, with with the local rulers to gain prominence for their for 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 each other's uh, mercantilist policies i mean the in a similar way you know the uh, i mean the in the during the cold war when the us and soviet union uh, uh, allied uh, they, they, they they made alliance with the with with the with the developing world and they raged you know proxy wars this uh, in a similar manner you know the, the the french and the british they also established nexus with the local rulers to uh, establish their, their their bases and and the clash of this of, of this interwar i mean the inter imperial conquest these these were taken sides by the either by the from the, from the, from the british as well as the, the the french so that led to you know the 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 genesis of the anglo-french rivalries and this anglo-french rivalry and when we all know that anglo-french rivalry it is a very huge context because in europe this the the, the, the very very uh, english british and the french they were the you know, long time rivals for several centuries and so and 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 being being you know the being the being the being the chief traders as well as colonizers they have they have their bases in mauritius in 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 in, other, it's in sudan in middle east and other other areas so so whenever the british uh, uh, continent with 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 French in 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 Europe, they had the reverberations felt in, in both in Canada, in Mauritius, in, in elsewhere, and along with India. So by uh, so by uh, in in this way, you know, the British should uh, uh, they they secured their bases by securing you know exclusive land rights by which they were given you know unconditional supremacy to acquire lands to go for trade because of the of the of the uh, you know the the uh, absence of of, of any strong nexus. I mean, the I would like to say you know the absence of of any of any strong base by which they could fight against the British. They basically these rulers were fighting individually. So that created a kind of trouble, and that gave you know the British an, an added advantage by securing their bases one after the other. So gradually they established Madras as their as the as the headquarters. Then after Bengal, then after Bombay, and established their bases. And and uh, and I would like to tell here uh, tell here you know the the the, the Mughals had their uh, had at the seaports in Surat. 
Masulipatnam, Negapatnam, by which they used to have, you know, overseas trade. So both the British, the French, and subsequently, and before before that, the Dutch, the, the Portuguese, the Danish, they also established their bases in, in these similar areas, in Surat, Masulipatnam, so that because because of their access to the land by, by the sea routes. But the, in, in, in the similar manner, you know, Hudson's Bay and the New, and the new Front were established along the shores of St. Lawrence and, uh, and the Hudson's Bay. Similarly, in the likewise, you know, this Indian Ocean was given, was acted as a, as a huge bridge builder by which they could have, you know, the easy access to the land routes to acquire resources from back home from Europe. So that is why this was a the beginning of this consolidation of the British Empire. So, so, so one after the other, we find, you know, the uh, uh, by, by acquiring Madras, they acquired Bengal in, in, in 1757, Bombay 1760, Pondicherry, and, uh, and in the in a similar manner, you know, the British uh, acquiring, acquiring, you know, the French colonies one after the other around the Nova Scotia. That's a really interesting parallel. And Stephen, so stepping away a little bit from the Hudson Bay Company, when we look at what England and France as colonial powers were doing in North America, it seems like there were some similarities. You know, they were having alliances with different indigenous First Nations uh, and conducting their wars in alliance with those nations on that um, North American territory. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, uh, and I thought I would just address... uh... The previous discussion, just a little bit, the the reason why those um, the British ships were able to get involved in the military aspects of the slowly uh, disintegrating empire in India was that they were so heavily armed when they left their home ports, you know, with their own internecine warfares, you know, Dutch, Portuguese, English, French, they're all at war and they would be attacking each other's ships en route. And there were so many pirates along the route. I'd imagine how they get there all the way down the coast of Africa, around the Cape of Good Hope, up along the coast of Africa, across the Indian Ocean. These are dangerous areas to be going with. Um, a, lot of, a lot of piracy, a lot of commerce was in there. And so those ships had a lot of soldiers on them, people trained and, you know, guns, cannons, swords, everything you can imagine that they had. And so when they came to India, they were, they were armed. And they began functioning a little bit as as mercenaries, and that's why, you know, they were able to be drawn in. People were drawing them into local politics because of their uh, superior military technology was providing advantages to people. And so that that didn't happen to the anything in the Hudson's Bay Company to the same extent because the Hudson's Bay Company never had a, a military aspect to it. Right. Sure. But apart from the Hudson Bay Company. England and France did fight each other in Acadia and in New France in a similar way as they did in India, would you say? Yeah, I just wanted to draw the distinction that that didn't have anything to do specifically with the Monopoly Hudson's Bay Company. That had that aspect of of, uh, of conflict had more to do with the national governments, and that's not where the Hudson's Bay Company was operating. The Hudson's Bay Company wasn't in the St. Lawrence area and didn't participate in any of those conflicts. But of course, the English and French were... Uh, and I think one other very important thing to point out that's a, that's a difference between these two scenarios is uh, the population of, of, of India and the, the civilization of India was more sophisticated and larger in terms of population than anything that existed in Europe at that time. Um, and so when those companies came, they took over the upper echelons of the ruling capacity, which is a conflict of interest. They were just a trading corporation and suddenly found themselves with unusual levels of, of control. Whereas 
in North America, owing to a lower population to begin with and devastating waves of disease, which in some cases, you know, wiped out up to 80% of indigenous populations in certain regions over time. And these diseases kept coming every several generations, continuously battering the population down. In the St. Lawrence, there was more of a, a population replacement instead of just an occupation of the upper echelons of the governing structure. And that's a, a key distinction. So there were actually British and French colonists and people along the St. Lawrence specifically, and that's where the formation of, of Canada began. Absolutely, yes. Yes, I, I would like to add here, add here uh, Stephen and Kate, that uh, uh, while, you know, going through some of, some of the charters that that, uh, that East India Company had, I found that that way back in 1657, you know, Oliver Cromwell, he, he issued a royal charter in favour of, of, you know, territorial conquests, uh, uh, conquest to EIC for by exploiting, by oppressing the local natives. Subsequently, you know, the the Court of Directors in 1766 also issued similar charter. They wanted to, you know, armed, uh, they wanted to make, you know, East India Company much more, much, much more militarily superior, as you were talking about, you know, much more militarily superior so as, to, so as to acquire more and more territories. And also, not only that, not, not only that the British sovereign, but also the British parliamentarians also had, you know, their, their stocks invested in East India Company. And because of, you know, the bounties that they were harvesting from India, they also getting, you know, uh, Fuller and Richard back home. Lord Carson in 1898. Uh, it was written. He categorically said that that that, that uh, India is a British crown. If if uh, if if British loses loses any of its dominion elsewhere, Britain will uh, will still carry on. But if Britain you know loses India, the sun will already start setting. I think that's a great seg to talk about some of these various lords and noble families. Uh, from England. And Madhubarna, you've done such a great job in your article of tracking these various noblemen and noble families that, you know, they start out, they're a governor general in Canada, and then they pop up as the viceroy of India, or they're the governor of Madras, and then they come along and they're the lieutenant governor of Nova Scotia. And there's so many of these connections. What I'm curious about is, how did this actually work? How did these noble men and noble families in England get these appointments at these various colonial outposts and, and get moved around between them? Well, uh, I think Kate, that uh, because of the vast expansiveness of the of the, so the British empire environment, British, I mean, they have this to say the rule Britannia, rule the waves. Britain will never, never be the slaves. So the Britain, the Britain had 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 the colonial bases. I mean, throughout almost every part of the world. So and 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 the, and the military generals that they have appointed elsewhere. So they were all you know tried and tested. They were all experienced in you know acquiring territories, establishing the the British bases outside Britain. So therefore, I think. I, I think this prompted uh, prompted the, the British government as well the British Crown to 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 send uh, to to transfer the same generals all over in, in all of the places like you know Lord Cornwallis I mean all the host of the of the of the of the British viceroys as well as the governor generals they both have bases not only in India and Canada but also in New Zealand in Australia in Australia in Barbados in Sudan you know Lord Kitchener Lord Kitchener uh, based on his name you know this Kitchener in Ontario he was the you know chief of the military military staff back in India in 1904 I mean before the first world war so uh, he was transferred as he, he, he was he was posted as the viceroy or the governor general of Sudan thereafter 
So and also, you know, the uh, Lord Lord Auckland. He was the Governor General of uh, of, of of India in 1936. He was then transferred to New Zealand. You know, this Auckland, this Auckland, this New Zealand. And also, you know, uh, Earl Durham. He was a Governor General of Canada. So he was one of the one of the first uh, first governors to initiate to start initiating you know colonize New Zealand in 1825. So this is how I think you know the because of the overwhelming you know uh, the uh, proficiency and also the success. that these military generals have acquired by virtue of their experiences throughout the throughout the world in the in this colonial outpost throughout the throughout the world i think that prompted you know the british government as well as the sovereign to 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 transfer to have the same generals in every part where they could have their own vested interests that could secure their interests very firmly hmm and were they all generals or were there some who were administrators who were not military people Yes, they were all everywhere. I mean, they were um, not only the military generals; they also have, you know, the educators too. They, I mean, they also have the uh, chief of staffs, but also the sculptors like like Michael Woods. Michael Woods, uh, he he is famous for unveiling the busts and the statues of uh, of Queen Victoria. So uh, he, uh, his his bust was uh, first inaugurated in Calcutta Museum by Lord Lytton, I guess, and the similar similar statue has unveiled in the in the Montreal and also in uh, Ottawa in, in Parliament. So uh, this, this is how we can explore the uh, explore the the uh, hidden threads that connects the two countries. And probably there would be a distinction p- between like the you know there's the trading the trading era where the you know the East India Company was. you know for many years it was actually just a small player just engaging in trade then there's the robert clive era when it kind of was drawn into these conflicts and you know i i say by accident i mean i don't mean that their intent was accidental i mean that their success was accidental such a small small force ended up having such a huge impact a lot of those people right right around that era in the mid 18th century were not administrators or generals or anything they were just barbarians or or plunderers i mean it was a, uh, a shameful destruction and theft for individual personal gain and it took many decades before the british government even tried to put controls on what this independent company was doing on the far side of the world Well, uh, Stephen, uh, I think that uh, while I was, you know, going through some of some of the books written by some of some of our our freedom fighters and also our national leaders way back in nineteen hundred, nineteen hundred one and ten, so I, I was finding that uh, that uh, the British uh, issued, I mean, um, Thomas uh, Babington Mackerel. Macaulay. So this he he wrote a, a very uh, famous or rather infamous you know minute uh, minute on India in eighteen thirty five. So he considered that that uh, the educational system of or the whole administration of of India has to be made in such a way so as to create a new class of intelligentsia who would. who would have who who would have you know the blood by uh, for being an indian blood of india however they have their morals their intellects their decision making ability would be similar to that of the of a british so therefore you know this whole the bunch of you know education institutions were cropping up our civil service our railway our our railways the the iron steel companies one after the other they were coming up so which were basically you know satisfying you know the british interest 
by exploiting you know the 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 indian natives and by 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 virtue of that you know our our whole language i mean i mean the uh, the, the for for several millennia india uh, india educational system was based on our oriental you know sanskrit tamils and other other native languages they were virtually overthrown and in 1835 you know english became the official you know medium of instruction and this was given by none other than this order by given by lord bentinck and given the fact that that that, that the indian native rulers didn't have that kind of power that kind of ability to fight back and therefore they gradually became their 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 stooge their their their, their allies and they virtually turned into your kind of yes men kind of kind kind of things well there's so much ground to cover here and we could talk about this for hours uh but we do need to slowly start wrapping things up so i'm just going to fast forward to the the 19th the early 20th centuries and at that time britain was slowly letting go of control over its british north american colonies over what became canada after confederation in 1867 you know granting gradually more and more and more self government until canada uh became the independent country we know today although still with king charles as our at least symbolic head of state um whereas the same didn't happen in india you know britain really kept a tight hold on india and indians had to fight uh for their independence what do you think was the reason for the difference in britain's approach to those two uh colonies and countries i have a perhaps cynical observation on that that uh the way that they've ruled india like i mentioned that they they, they conquered india in steps and took over the ultimate the, the pinnacle of society from the british point of view india was a cash cow they were exploiting large the, the the economy of india was was staggeringly huge compared to you know the great britain economy although the great britain economy through industrialization did you know massively expand in the 19th century but india was a cash cow there was so much going on it was so easy to to siphon off the the profit let's call it from india or just you know in a sense just kind of uh, steal it like taking the cream off the top of the milk whereas in canada because there was a large colonial population there was a significant expense to running canada um you know it was costing them money they weren't making any money off of off of running canada so they would prefer to have a much more hands off role and it would encourage you to take control of your own affairs you people over there in canada in other words pay for it yourself whereas in india maybe they want to maintain control of it because they look at the balance sheet and realize wow this is the source of a lot of our national wealth yes a uh, very very true stephen you have rightly pointed it out uh, i would like to comment here that uh, that uh, Uh, you know this the uh the, the entire war effort i mean both the both the world wars so both the both the first as well as the second world war the, here india india has you know profound profound contribution not only you know supplying you know the men in uniforms and also the equipments ammunition and also but but you know uh, uh, the, the huge supply of the raw materials the animals the rice and also salt patent which is a one of the key ingredients they were supplied from india by 
exploiting the indians you know india suffered some of the worst famines during this in this british period so i'm starting from 1770s some then madras madras famine 1890s or also bengal famine 1840 1943 and he also uh, i mean winston churchill he himself commented that to squeeze out resources from bengal so as to cater to the european european armies so this is how you know this this has hold uh, the plundering of wealth it's called the uh, drain of wealth that that that, uh, that the british acquired from from uh, india uh, I th- uh, and 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 you were just uh, Kate, you were rightly pointed out to you know when when canada was when, when british was, was loosening its grip over canada india on the other hand they were tightening its grip well uh, well i personally feel it is kind of you know a kind of racialism that was operating in the in, in this part of the world because uh, I'm not talking talking about the indigenous population in Canada. I mean the, the large immigrant population that Canada has. Basically, they were coming from this, you know, Western Europe. So they also shared, you know, the same kind of blood, the kin and kith. So they were all kind of their own own men, basically. Whereas from the Indian point of view, they are just like the indigenous community, the indigenous people, people of Canada. They were just the natives, dark skinned, and and Lord Macaulay uh, he himself pointed out that that Oriental languages are not fit for fit for studying. Let overthrow them and just impose, you know, English as a medium of language so this is how the, this is how you know orientals i mean the whole whole system which which india india used to enjoy for over several millennia were, were gradually uprooted supplanted and you know this english became the dominant dominant force the english the english way of culture you know english judicial system administration you know this indian civil service was basically shaped upon the british model so as to cater to the british interest in india so the, so uh, this is how you know the whole whole system of exploitation flourished you know canada had its own large famines i just thought of that when you're mentioning all the famines in india that were completely mismanaged by an incompetent you know incompetent corporate or company leadership and then incompetent British leadership too, who didn't really know what they were doing, starved like, I believe I'm accurate to say millions of yes. people died. Yes, yeah. millions. Okay. Um, in Canada, we had the Great Bison Famine, which was the 1870s. Now, that wasn't directly caused by the government. It was caused by the, you know, the overhunting of bison, and especially in the United States, where they were a policy of shooting and destroying them all in order to starve the indigenous populations. Uh, the management of that by the Canadian government, which had only recently proclaimed ownership over those lands, was, well, uh, shameful. I mean, it's uh, little known in our history right now, but I mean, it's uh, the mismanagement was, was absolutely incredible. So many people completely uh, starved to death. Now, they didn't have the technical capacity to completely solve that situation, no matter what they did, but the efforts that they put into it was very limited. And so, yeah, we have our own uh, horrible situations uh, here, dating back to around the same time period, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, this has been a really interesting discussion, but unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up here. Uh, Madhuprana, just before we go, any last thoughts for us? Well, uh, uh, Kate, I just can't comprehend that the you know there are several military generals. I mean the the administrators, the viceroys, and and the and the governor generals who were very much lenient towards Canada, but they you know they became t- uh, they became very much you know one sided or partisan towards Indians. Had uh, they could you know the, they they could loosen their grip, you know India could have could have uh, uh, reclaimed her lost status which India used to have before the British. We're going to have to leave it there for today, but I'd like to thank you both for joining us. Madhuprana, thank you. Thank you, Stephen. And thank you, Canada's History and Kate, for organizing this insightful discussion. And Stephen, thank you to you too for joining us on this Canada's History podcast. Thank you, and it was my pleasure to be here. 
The Stories Behind the History podcast is produced by Canada's History Society. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not subscribe to Canada's History magazine? To subscribe, or just to find out more about Canada's History Society, go to canadashistory.ca. Our theme music is The Red River Jig, performed by Alex Kusterok, from the album Métis Fiddling for Dancing by Alex Kusterok, Donnie Lirondelle, and Gary Pruden. I'm Kate Jamet. Thank you for joining us on the Stories Behind the History podcast.